So how's the day treating you? Good? Oh, man. Going over to uh, Decision America out at Boise was pretty cool today. So it was, uh, it was awesome to see a bunch of people gathered together to pray for our nation. And uh, exciting things happened, and we all made it. So all the bikes got there, all the bikes got home. That's always a plus. And the bus made it too, in case you were worried about the bus. The bus did okay. If you guys have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up. Revelation chapter 1. I know you might find this shocking. I'm not sure that we'll finish Revelation 1 still. However, let's, uh, let's take a look at it, and uh, we'll pick it up uh, from verse 1. Just read it together. I want to try to keep the Scripture fluid as we work our way through it um, so we don't uh, lose sight of what's going on. Revelation chapter 1 is the first division of the book of Revelation, we're going to find it divides into three parts. And Revelation 1 is a very important part because it is the unveiling, the revealing. Remember I told you it's like a, a sculpture, right? The, the, the sculpture is covered, and Revelation chapter 1 is the pulling of the cover off and, and revealing Jesus Christ, showing Him. And so there's so much stuff to, to really glean in chapter 1. Hopefully we'll be able to do it justice. It begins in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. So blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. So write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you see in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word. And God, as we just come before you and we pray, God, that the that our hearts would be able to receive the truth of your word. God, our eyes would be able to see, our ears able to hear the things which your spirit is speaking to the church. That we might know you, the power of your resurrection, Lord God. That we might be able to recognize you and clearly see you on the pages of scripture. Lord, I pray in this first division of the book of Revelation, this most important unveiling and revealing of Jesus Christ, I pray we might have eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we take a look uh, tonight, we're going to begin taking a look at verse 9 and, uh, and remind ourselves where John's at, what's going on with John, and then we'll move into the, to the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look. Verse 9 says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. This is an important thing that John lays out for us. He doesn't describe himself as, John, I'm the beloved disciple, the one Jesus loved more than the rest of them. He doesn't describe himself as, I'm John, one of the disciples. He doesn't elevate or extol or exalt himself in any way because he understands that he's just a brother. I'm a brother. I'm just like you. Put on my britches the same way. Put on my shoes one at a time. I, I go through the same stuff that you're going through. He says, I am a brother and a companion in the tribulation. That word tribulation is the word philipsis. It means a crushing. John had gone through a crushing in his life. What do I mean? Well, just prior to going to the island of Patmos, according to Eusebius, he was boiled in oil. And he should have died, but he didn't. So they go, well, what are we going to do with him? Let's send him to Patmos. Now, Patmos is an interesting place. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he says, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation, the crushing. I'm going through the same stuff you're going through. I'm going through the same persecution that you're going through, the same hardship. He says, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation and what? Kingdom. I'm your brother in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of his Christ. This is what the gospel is all about, right? The gospel is all about the kingdom of God. That, that this land, this world is in need of a king. And Jesus Christ is that king. And we have opportunity now, today, to bow our knee to the God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings, Jesus Christ. And allow him, ask him to be both our Lord and Savior. And we enter into his kingdom. We become a part of that kingdom looking for the return of our king. But thirdly, also the patience of Jesus Christ. You see that phrase? The patience. Hupomone. The patience of Jesus Christ. That Hupomone is the ability to bear up under. The ability to endure. That's a good word for it. The ability to endure hardship. And what patience is it? The patience of who? Jesus Christ. That same patience, same endurance, same, same strength under control that we see in the life of Christ. John says, I'm your brother and I'm your companion going through tribulation, just like you're going through tribulation, marching forward in the kingdom of God, looking forward to the return of our king. And I'm enduring. I'm enduring what's going on. He says, I was on the island of Patmos. That's not Hawaii. It's not. I had an opportunity to do a tour to the footsteps of Paul. And we did a, a cruise, three-day cruise through the Greek Isles, which was like an added bonus. But one of the Greek Isles we stopped at was Patmos. And I just want you to know, it was not like I pictured it in my mind. So when I pictured Patmos in my mind, I, I pictured just a rock. You know, not much vegetation, but that's really not what Patmos looks like. It's uh, it's uh, islands got trees. There's a, a a a city there now. People go there to vacation. Hey, I'm vacationing on Patmos. Um, but when Rome was in charge, it was a prison island. It was a it was a place where they could put people to work in the mines. So. John, because of his testimony in Jesus Christ, and because he did not die when he was being tortured 
by the but Roman Empire, they just said, you know what, put them on Patmos. So they put them on Patmos, and God gave them one of the greatest visions that we see throughout Scripture. So it doesn't really matter what man does. He cannot stop or thwart the work of God. The work of God is moving forward. The work of God will still bring about what it is to bring about. Now look what he says. He says, I was there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Wasn't there because he robbed a bunch of guys. Wasn't there because he was, you know, just a, 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 a bad citizen of Rome. He was there because he served Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. You know, there's going to come a time. You're going to have to pick a side. You're not just going to be able to be a good citizen of the United States. You're going to have to pick. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior, or I'm a good citizen of the United States. But those two aren't on the same track today. I don't know if you recognize that, but they're not on the same track. Now, I thought it was good because I thought Franklin Graham had a lot of encouraging things to say today. And I don't want to spend too much time off the subject or I'll never finish chapter 1 of Revelation. But one of the things that he said was, the, the concept, and we've kind of been talking about it here, about engaging culture. We don't, we don't have the right to disengage and just, you know, say, well, I'm good. But we need to stay engaged. That means we need to stay engaged in the process. We need to stay engaged in what's going on. Franklin Graham was encouraging people, if you're a believer and you feel like God's laid on your heart to run for office, run for office. You know, maybe maybe the, the bigger offices and the... And the uh, uh, you know, Congress and and Senate and the President and all that stuff. Maybe that's not our gig, but you know, if uh, I thought he had a good point, if all the mayors are believers, it doesn't really matter what the rest of them are doing, because you've made a difference in your community, in your place. So, so engaging. But how do we want to engage? Just like John did with with Rome. I'm here for the testimony of the Word of God. I stand by the Word of God, and I stand by Jesus Christ. And where culture diverts from those things, we let it, you know, I'm, I'm not going that way. I, I don't care what culture says. Here's what God's word says. Here's what Jesus Christ says. So verse 10, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Two ways you can look at that phrase. He was in the spirit worshiping on Sunday. Or while he was on Patmos, he was caught up in the spirit and taken to the Lord's day. Jesus talked about that in Isaiah chapter 61. He talked about the day of the Lord, and which is a, a synonymous term with the end of days. What, what's the vision that John's going to see? He's going to see a vision of the end of days, right? That, that final 70th week of Daniel we've been studying about in the book of Daniel. So it doesn't make any difference really which way you, you lean. And uh, people are divided pretty much uh, down the middle on it. It's up to you guys which way you want to go. But he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet. Saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. So what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Cyrus, uh, Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So he hears this loud voice behind him. Now that's going to come back up. And you'll notice, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, if you don't, it doesn't matter. But if you do, uh, those are in red letters. Now, some people will disagree. And they'll say, no, that can't be Jesus talking, because that title, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, is a clear title of, for Yahweh. It's a clear title for Yahweh. We're going to look at it tonight in Isaiah uh, 44 and, uh, and 48. So just hold on to that idea, because in a moment, uh, yeah, in a moment... We're going to see the, the unmitigated reality that it's Jesus Christ who's talking. Now keep in mind, what is this book? The revelation of who? Jesus Christ, whom the Father gave to the Son. The Son gave to an angel who signified it and gave it to his servant John. So this is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look. And the, Now from uh, verse 12 all the way to verse 18, we see the revelation of our risen Lord. Okay, This is part of that vision. The unveiling of Jesus Christ. He hears this noise behind him. So what's he do? I turn to see the voice that spoke. Right? So same voice speaking. I turn to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment to the feet, girded about the chest with a gold band. So there are several points we want to bring out of the revelation of Jesus Christ. One, the first point I want to talk about is his centrality. The centrality of Jesus Christ. Where is he? He's in the middle of the seven lampstands. Now, he tells us, we won't get there tonight, but he tells us those seven lampstands are what? The church. So where does he say I am? I'm in the middle of the church. I'm central to the church. I'm in the midst of it all. The centrality of Christ is an important thing for us to be able to wrap our minds around. That he needs to be central. See, a lot of times we move Christ out of the way and we put ourselves in the middle and we watch the whole world revolve around us. But that's not how it's supposed to be. The whole world revolves around Christ. He's central, not me. He's central, not us. We've got to keep him in the midst, in the middle, where he needs to be. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 says, To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write these things. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks where? In the midst of the seven lampstands. The centrality of Christ. That's going to be an important message to the church at Ephesus who has left their first love. What does that mean? Christ, the centrality of Christ is a, a problem that's going on in that church. Revelation 5, 6 <laughs> says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders. What's he, what do we see? What, what, what word are we saying over and over again? In the midst of the throne, in the midst of the living creatures, in the midst of the 24 elders. What is it? In the midst, the lamb, as though it had been slain. What is central to everything that we do? Look, if Christ is not central, everything we do is a waste of time. We're just spinning our wheels, man. Christ has got to be in the midst, in the middle of it all. So the first thing I want you to see in, in verse 12 and 13 is his centrality. The second thing I want you to notice is his humanity. His humanity. Let's well, say, one like the Son of Man. Now, anytime we see that phrase, the Son of Man is a title. And the Son of Man takes us immediately to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is the foundational scripture dealing with the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. You'll, you'll recognize it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. It's a coronation ceremony of the Messiah. It's the, the, the perfect way to see it is Daniel chapter 7, this is what happens at the ascension of Christ. Where's the Son of Man coming? Up. Up to who? The Ancient of Days. He's coming up to the Father. What did Jesus do at the ascension? He went up to heaven, right? Well, what happened there? Well, it says, Daniel says, I saw that. I saw Jesus coming up to the, to the Father. And the Father said, come, sit here on my throne. Now, who does God ever say that to? Now, nobody else. Come, sit on my throne until I make your enemies your footstool. God says, I'm going I'm to give this all to you. All of it. The kingdom of God and of his Christ. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is God the Son. And his coronation was spoken of in Daniel chapter 7 as he comes up to sit on the throne uh, with his father. But his humanity, what is it? Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. God became flesh. Look at Matthew 24, 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and all the tribes of earth will mourn. Why are they going to mourn? Why are the people going to mourn? Because, look, here's the sign of the Son of Man. What's the sign of the Son of Man? It's a return to Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? They'll look on Him whom they have pierced, and they'll do what? Mourn. Mourn. It says everybody will see the Son of Man. How many eyes will see Him? We'll see in a moment when we look at Revelation. Every eye will see Him. Does God need CNN to make that happen? No, last I checked, He made your eyes, didn't He? Yep. You know, He, he knew how to do TV long before TV was around. Right? He didn't have any problem revealing Himself to His creation. And I don't believe He will in this case either. The Son of Man coming on the clouds with heaven, uh, with power and great glory. 
And then look at Philippians chapter 2, 5 and 11. This is a very important section of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 is what they call the great kenosis uh, section of Scripture. Kenosis is the word that means to empty. The emptying. What, what was involved? The incarnation of God is an, a, a mind-boggling concept. It's mind-boggling. I, I'd love to tell you I understand how it works. But God's transcendent. He's above and beyond me. But what I know is what Scripture teaches. What does it teach? Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was where? In Christ Jesus, right? <laughs> Who, being in the form, that word form is morphe. It means the exact nature of. It doesn't mean uh, some kind of representation. Being in the form of God means that he was in the exact nature God. Keep that in mind. That's what morphe means. He was in the exact nature God. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It means it wasn't something he grasped at to hold on to that reputation. He surrenders that. He surrenders not the idea that he is God, but he surrenders that and made himself of no reputation. Look at the next phrase, and taking on the form. You see that word again? That's the word morphe again. Taking on the form. What, what does that mean? The exact nature of a servant. What does that tell us? It tells us that Yahweh is, in his nature, a servant. Just like in his nature, he is God. In the same way he is God, he is a servant. He took on the exact nature of a bondservant. A bondservant, by the way, was a slave by choice, free will. And coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him above every name that is named. That the name of Jesus Christ, how many knees will bow? How many tongues will confess? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What is it that set Jesus Christ above and apart was the incarnation, God in the flesh. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. That word with means face to face, standing before Yahweh together, looking in one another's face. The Word was with God, and then the Word was God. In exact nature. There's no definite article, which means that it is speaking of nature. His nature. He is absolute God. God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, God the Son. We're going to see that beyond a shadow of a doubt. You have to throw the book of Revelation out if you don't believe that. Because the book of Revelation is going to tell us that so many times you get tired of hearing it. That He is in his exact nature, absolute God. But what's important here in Philippians chapter 2 is God became what? Flesh. He became flesh. And the Word became flesh and did what? Tabernacled with us. Dwelt with you. You ever said, man, I, I, wish, I wish you could spend a day walking in my shoes? Well, guess what? That's what God did. He spent more than a day. 33 years, at least. Walking in your shoes. Knowing what it is to be rejected. Knowing what it is to be hated without a cause. Knowing what it is. All the different things we feel. The Bible tells us he was in all ways tempted as we are, yet without sin. He walked it all. The whole road. All the way to death. Was obedient all the way to death. And so he laid out for us that path that we should walk. So what do we see? His centrality. His humanity. He's one like the Son of Man. <clears throat> Next we see his royalty. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the chest with a golden band. So one of the things we're going to see Jesus described as is both high priest and king. Ultimately, what we're going to see is he's prophet, priest, and king. So, But here, the clothing that they're talking about is both kingly garb and the, and the, and the clothing of the high priest. That golden band across his chest. That's where the high priest would wear the twelve stones of the nation of Israel. Why do he wear the 12 stones of the nation of Israel across his chest? Because he's always supposed to keep them where? On his heart. They're always on his heart. You know where else they were? On his shoulders. So he's bearing with them. 
and caring for them. That's the symbolic nature of the garb of the high priest. Here's what the Word of God tells us in Psalm 93.1. Yahweh reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Psalms often talk about God being clothed in majesty. God being clothed in the high priestly garb. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16... It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, just in case you don't know who that is, he's going to name him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the, what's it? A throne. Now, the high priest does not sit on a throne. Right? Well, the high priest worked within the temple. But here it's describing Jesus Christ as our high priest. And then it says, because he was tempted in all ways like we are, we can come before the throne of grace. Why can we come boldly before the throne of grace? Because our high priest is our king. It's the majesty of Jesus Christ. That's this third part that we want to see. His royalty. His royalty. He is both high priest and king. Look at verse 14. We want to see his purity. His purity. Now some people see this as a, a picture of the ancient of days. But even as we talk about it in Daniel chapter 7. I think it, it pictures the, the purity of God uh, the Father there as well. But let's take a look at it. In verse 14. His head and hair were white. Okay, Remember I told you we work our way through the book of Revelation. There are metaphors and simile. But saying that his head and hair were white does not, is not a metaphor or a simile. Just a fact. Now he's going to tell us what, what that means. That his head and hair are white. But then he gives us the, the, the metaphor. He gives it now. He says, like wool. As white as what? Snow. Does that remind you of scripture anywhere? It should. And his eyes... Or like a flame of fire. So first we see his head and his hair, white like wool, as white as snow. It's almost an exact representation of the Ancient of Days, which is the description of Yahweh at the throne. Remember when the Son of Man comes up for after the ascension, the coronation, if you will, that takes place as he sits at his Father's throne awaiting his enemies to be uh, uh, made his footstool. So... As that's going on, the description of the Ancient of Days is the same. Well, do you really think that when the Bible describes Yahweh, the Bible says there, Hero Israel, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, your God, is one God. There's one Yahweh. One Yahweh with three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do we think that the Father and the Son do not have the same characteristics? That they wouldn't be described the same way? You're going to see throughout the whole book of Revelation, the Son is going to be called the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. A title only used for Yahweh. That's not surprising. Why would that be surprising? He is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. He is the Son. The Father is Yahweh. Is it surprising that He's described as a head and hair as white as wool? Is it, is it, does it, does it uh, stun us? That he's called the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the same titles? No, why? Because the Father is what? Yahweh. One Yahweh. We see it all the way through the persons of the Trinity. We'll see it all the way through. Look, Daniel 7, 9, I watched, and thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment is white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. When we look at Hebrews 7.26, it says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is what? Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become <coughs> higher than the heavens. So when we look at it, what is it that's, how are they describing the high priest? How are they describing Jesus Christ? His purity. That's why it says his Head and hair were white. It's purity. 
What do you mean? Well, think about Isaiah 118. You guys, should, this, this verse should come to mind immediately when we talk about this idea, wide and wider than snow. What's it say? Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. For though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. When he who knew no sin became sin for us, what did we become? The righteousness of God. Purity. Not because we are pure, our acts are pure, but because he is pure. He bestows that purity upon us. Though they were as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Both of those phrases taken straight out of Revelation should drive us right back to the Word and, and take Isaiah 118 and say, what's he talking about here? He's talking about his purity. His head and hair were white. Next we see his scrutiny, the scrutiny of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it says his eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes were like a flame of fire. What does that mean? It burns right through you. How many times did Jesus look at a scribe or a Pharisee and not answer their question because he answered what was in their heart? He saw their heart. He could see their heart. What did God say about the heart of mankind? It's deceitful. What else did he say about the heart of mankind? It's desperately wicked. And then he said, nobody can know it but me. God says, I know it because I know the deep things. I know the deep things of the Spirit. I can see. What is it? The eyes of a flame of fire. He has scrutiny. You're not going to be able to stand before Jesus Christ and pull the wool over his eyes. He sees clean through you. He sees clean through me. He knows all the, the garbage that's in me. One of the things we did today up at, uh, up at Boise is we prayed. We prayed not only for the sins of our nation. We prayed for our, for our own sins. I didn't know how Franklin was going to do it. All that kind of wrapped up together as, as we were praying. Because I have a hard time praying for the sins of the nation when I consider I got some of those same problems in me. So, so dealing with that idea that says, you know what? When the church of Jesus Christ will stop pointing its finger outside as though all the problems are out there and start realizing the majority of those problems are living inside of our hearts at least, and we need to repent of those same things, we're not going anywhere. We're going to just sit around spinning our wheels. Because it is when we repent that Jesus Christ empowers and forgives. So we have to have that. We have to be Daniel of whom the scripture says not one sin. Now I'm not telling you Daniel never sinned because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? But the Bible doesn't tell us, we, David, we have David's failures, yeah? But we don't have none of those at Daniel. But what do we see Daniel doing? On his knees asking God to forgive him and in repentance. That's why God opened up his eyes to the rest of the nation because Daniel was willing to pray and say, God, I'm a mess. And what is it that God promised? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, right? If they will repent, if they'll call upon my name. Look, God is able to be there. And that's what we see. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, his eyes are going to see. In Daniel 10, 6, it says, his body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like torches of fire. So Daniel saw the same thing when he looked at him. Daniel chapter 10, still talking about Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, 12 says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. His head, on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written, which no one knew except himself. His eyes are a flame of fire. Nobody gets past standing before Jesus Christ. There's no... Look, you're real. And... and He'll see it. It's way easier just to be real now, right? And not pretend. Not, not hide behind a, a mask of hypocrisy. But just stand before the one who already knows. To, before whom all my deeds are open. No sense in hiding those things. So the Bible talks of his scrutiny. Next we see his victory. Look at verse 15. <coughs> his feet. We're like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of many waters. His feet were like fine brass as though refined in a furnace. Now I want you to picture that. 
What's that look like? Red. Right? You ever seen brass heated up in a fire, molten metal, bright red. In Isaiah 63, here's what it says. Who is this who comes from Edom? That's Jordan. With dyed garments from Basra. The one who is glorious in his apparel. Traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness. Mighty to save. That's the answer. I who speak in righteousness. Mighty to save. So the next question. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? The answer, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Listen, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. When Jesus reads Isaiah 61 in a little synagogue in Nazareth, and he tells them, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your, in your hearing, he stopped before the day of vengeance. He says, now is the time of Messiah, the time of forgiveness, the time of repentance, the time to turn your eyes and heart to him. But right after that section, say, is a comma and the day of the vengeance of our God. What happens on the day of the vengeance of God? Payday someday. Every, everything is paid. God will come back and, and take the rebellious planet. He will bring it into submission. And that's what's being pictured in Isaiah 63. He's trampling the wine press. What, what's his feet look like then? Red, right? Stomping on the grapes. The Bible calls it the grapes of wrath. In fact, if we look at Revelation chapter 14, you're going to see the same phrase. Revelation 14, 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Roughly 185 miles. Remember I told you the Bible talks about two feasts. Book of Daniel, we're going to see examples of that. In the book of Revelation, we're going to see it confirmed. What are the two feasts? The feast of the great God, which is when all the birds are called the feast on the flesh of men in their final rebellion against God when that rebellion is put down. Or the marriage supper of the Lamb. Two dinners. The Bible tells, right, Matthew 22, that the invitations have gone out to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those invitations have gone out far and wide. Whosoever will can come. But you've got to put on a wedding garment, right? You don't get to come your own way. You've got to come by putting on Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 14. Read it. It's what putting on Christ is all about. Putting on that wedding garment and entering in for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, not only do we see his victory, and that's what I think, that the, the bronze is always a picture of judgment. <clears throat> it's his victory, it's his feet set on the Mount of Olives. The Bible says the Mount of Olives will split in two. Water will flow through. There will be healing of the Dead Sea. All that will take place. Well, he comes to the Mount of Olives, up to the Mount of Olives, as he walks from Edom through Basra, passes through a little valley. What's that valley called? Megiddo, right, is the mountain. So the valley is called Har Megiddo, or Armageddon. He's going to walk through Armageddon. That's 185 miles long. The Jezreel Valley. Come up on top of the Mount of Olives. It's over. Plant the flag. Mountain splits. Dead Sea is cured. The kingdom has come. He's coming in victory. Only one time is the lamb. What's the second time? The lion, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah has returned. Also, we see his majesty. His voice is like the sound of many waters. Now, Psalm 29, the entire psalm is about the voice of Yahweh. That the voice of Yahweh is like many waters. That the voice of Yahweh, all this, these, these pictures that it, that it lays out for us. 
Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory. Do His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. For the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. What's the point of Psalm 29? When God talks, it happens. What did he say in the beginning? God said, let there be, and then light was. Period. Jesus stood outside of a tomb and said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. There was not this long conversation, a bunch of magic words he had to speak, some kind of dance he had to do. No, all he had to do was say it, and what happened? Lazarus comes forth. Jesus out on the storm, the wind and the waves. <coughs> what did he say? Peace be still. He spoke. What happened? The Bible says he rebuked the storm, and it went away. The voice of the Lord, the majesty of God seen as the sound of many waters. Hebrews 12, 25-26 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. If he wouldn't listen to earthly voices, Moses in particular, and you were judged for that, how much more if you don't listen to the voice of the Son of God? What must I do to do the works of God? What did Jesus say? Believe on Him whom the Father sent. Believe on Him. So we see the majesty of God. In verse 16, we see His sovereignty. Look at it. He had in His right hand seven stars, and out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. First, His sovereignty. He has in His right hand seven stars. He's going to tell us who those seven stars are. <clears throat> and I've heard a lot of people, and I've been caught up in it myself. I'm not sure why, except I heard other people say it. That the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And so they say, well, that can't really be real angels, so it must be the pastors of the seven churches. Well, why? If God wanted to say pastors, couldn't he have said pastors? What did he say? Angels. How many times do you see angels in the book of Revelation? Oh, trust me, you're going to see the word angels over and over and over and over again. What's he talking about? Angels. Except for this time? Huh. I don't know if I can make that leap. I don't know if I can do that. I think when he says he's holding the seven stars in his hand, which are the seven angels of the seven churches, what do we see? God, All the judgments of God are going to be poured out on the earth by who? Seven angels who are where? Around the throne. Right there waiting for, for Jesus to say, dump that bowl, blow that trumpet. You with me? The seven stars are the seven angels. His sovereignty, more than that, the seven stars also, to me, are a picture of cosmology, the, the universe. What holds the universe together? Jesus Christ. What holds creation together? Jesus Christ. What holds your life together? Jesus Christ. He is sovereign over it all. He is the sovereign over every bit of it. God has made it, and He is... When I say God is sovereign, I mean He's the King of it all. You may not acknowledge him as king, but he's still king. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of the planets. He's the king of the stars. He's the king of it all. He holds the seven stars in his hands. I think it speaks of his sovereignty overall. Then we see his authority out of his mouth <coughs> went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, I don't have a lot of time to get into it. Hebrews, you have the same phrase, right? The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. The word for sword in those two scriptures are different. The word for sword in Hebrews is like the short sword of the Romans, which was kind of used for surgical strikes. The sword used here in Revelation is the two-handed, beefy battle sword. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, you can't use one hand. It's big. So when he says, look, <clears throat> out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword the word is ramphae we see it in, in several places in scripture but it talks about it in isaiah eleven four. but with righteousness 
He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And in Revelation 19, 15, Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, same word. With it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them as with a rod of iron. Revelation 19, 21, And the rest were killed with the sword, same word, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The, the word, that the, the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, that's a, that's a sword of his authority. The sword of his authority. It's not that little surgical sword. And the Bible says that the word of God can divide between the thoughts and the intent of the heart. Hey, that's true. But this sword's bigger. We're not poking for little spaces. This sword's coming down to club. Every time this word's used, it's used in judgment of God, speaking of destruction of the nations and bringing them in line, quelling the rebellion of mankind against him. His authority out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword. And then also his beauty. His beauty. The countenance of him was like the sun shining in its strength. Now listen, I want you to picture this. <coughs> Have to pick up speed. The angels are described as stars. The church is described as lampstands. And Jesus Christ, his countenance, his bearing is described as the sun shining in its strength. You get the picture? Like the angels reflect the glory of God, the church reflects the glory of God, but the difference between those reflections and the sun is pretty dramatic. The beauty of God, the sun shining in its strength. Matthew 17, 2, at the transfiguration, it says what? That his face became shining like the sun in its strength before them at the transfiguration next verse 17 we see his deity and when i saw him i fell at his feet as dead but he laid his right hand on me and said do not be afraid i am the first and the last who's talking that's jesus talking right well didn't he just use the title of yahweh sure he did absolutely he did said i am the first and the last that is an absolute title of yahweh isaiah 41 4 God says, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am. He is Almighty God. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, <coughs> the Lord of hosts. Uh-oh, what just happened? You have Yahweh speaking, and you have Him described as two parts. The King... The Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer. And His Redeemer. I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no Elohim. Beside me there is no other God. We come to Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel. My called, I am He, I am the first, and also the last. What happened when John saw this? What's the scripture say? When I saw Him, I fell as one dead same exact response daniel had in daniel chapter 10 when he saw him he falls down as a dead man face in the ground until what happens until the response of the one who he saw what did he do he laid his right hand on him and he said fear not john 14 1 jesus speaking to his disciples said let not your hearts be troubled you believe in god believe also in me he came and he comforted and finally, in verse 18, the last scripture we're going to look at tonight, we see his eternity. <coughs> the eternity of Jesus Christ. I am he who lives. Oh, here's a problem. By the way, previously I said, who was talking? Well, this will tell you. I am he who lives and was dead. When was the father ever dead? Oh, that's going to be a problem, isn't it? That's Jesus talking, right? He died on the cross. Remember, are you with me? I am he who lives, was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. I have the keys to the grave. I have the keys to destruction. First, he says, I am the living one. That phrase, I am the living one, is used of God all throughout the Old Testament. I am he who lives. Same phrasing. He says in Psalm 42, 2, My soul thirsts for God for the 
living God. I am he who lives. Psalm 84, 2. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God, the God who lives. I am he who lives. And then that phrase, was dead, literally means became dead. I am the living one who became dead, which is contrasted. The statement is a single event of history, not a continual state of existence. When you and I die, we're dead. When Jesus Christ died, the Bible says he would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. He was only in the ground three days. And then what? He came out. He rose. <coughs> the Bible says he rose for our justification. So, he is the living one. He became dead, a single event of history. And he is alive for how long? Forevermore. That phrase, forevermore, me is literally unto the ages of the ages is, and is only ever in Scripture used of Yahweh. He's the only one who's eternal. Yahweh is eternal. He is eternal in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unto the ages of the ages, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, Revelation 4, 9, and 10, to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Who is Him who sits on the throne? We, we read about it in Daniel chapter 7 at the ascension. What happened? Where's Jesus seated? On the throne. Sitting on the throne. He gives honor and glory to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him. That's a picture of the church. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 4. Who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their, cro their crowns before the throne, saying... So we see the casting of the crowns of the church at the feet of one who sits on the throne, Jesus Christ, the one who lives forever and ever. And he has the keys of Hades and death. That's a symbol of authority and control. Right? Wasn't G Jesus able to control the grave even when he walked on earth? Sure he was. Remember we just talked about it. Lazarus do what? Come forth. Come forth. It was, hard. It was tough to die in the presence of Jesus in those days. He is the one who has authority and control over Hades, the grave. And the death. There's two deaths the Bible talks about. The first death and the second death. From the first death, there will be resurrection. From the second death, that's an eternal state. The second death is also described as those who are cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the second death. He is the one who has the keys to Hades. The Bible says the sea... And the dead, Hades and the dead, are all going to give up every soul, the, the great and the small, to stand before the great white throne judgment of God. Every soul, he has the keys. He has the authority. This is Jesus Christ. We, we look at Jesus Christ a lot. When Christmas time, we see him, and, and, you know, that's great. That's a partial picture. Revelation gives us the complete. That is a picture of Jesus Christ. But today is the day to know him. Yeah? Not then. Don't wait till you're.